Well, for the past few weeks, we've been in this Lenten series called Restore Us. And today we look at the looming day of Easter and we look towards this idea of restoration. And as we engage the triumphant story of Easter, we realize this idea comes to an end. And we reflect on Easter, the day that changed the world. This morning, allow me to quote from a Washington Post article that was published this week in the opinion section. It's from an author named Alexandra Petrie, and she wrote this, and it it stood out to me as we reflect on the Easter season. The gentleman arrested on Thursday was tried before Pontius Pilate, had a troubled background. He was born out of wedlock, in a stable. This jobless 30-something of Middle Eastern origin had previous run-ins with the local authorities for disturbing the peace. He had become increasingly associated with the members of a fringe religious group. He'd spent the majority of his time in the company of sex workers and known criminals. He had prior run-ins with the local authorities, most notably an incident of vandalism in a local community center where he wrecked the tables of several licensed moneylenders and bird sellers. At the time of his own arrest, he had not held a fixed residence for years. Instead, he'd lived more of a homeless lifestyle, staying at the homes of friends and advocating for the redistribution of wealth. He'd come to the attentions of the authorities more than once for his own authorized distribution of food, his public behavior, which was disruptive, and his participation in weird aquatic ceremonies. Some say that his brutal punishment at the hands of the state was out of proportion and unrelated to any of these incidents in his record. However, this homeless hooligan that was described in his article was also a trained and bold rabbi who spoke deeply about the things of God and about his kingdom. He had deep passion and conviction and authority when he spoke for those that were willing to see him as that. Jesus had words that were full of life and hope and promise that seemed to connect in deep ways with those who were truly listening, those who had their souls open. And his words were not only passionate, full of life and hope, but they were also full of invitation and challenge to those around him. It was because of these things that led these followers of Jesus, to both contagiously and courageously go on mission into their neighborhoods, their spheres of influence, and the surrounding countrysides. His followers spent three years by his side, mirroring him. They had learned to trust him with everything, including their life and their breath. The one thing they struggled to never fully trust him with was their expectations. By Palm Sunday, though, their expectations seemed to be happening, and it seemed that everything was in place for revolution. Everything was falling perfectly in place. The town was overwhelmed with this triumphant entry of this troublemaker riding a donkey, and the crowds began to praise him like a Messiah, and they watched him proclaim like a prophet. But as he taught, he sounded like a rabbi. And more importantly, to those who were following him and surrounding themselves with him, they became aware that he loved like a close friend. But then three, ago, three days ago, their hopes 
and their expectations of their rabbi and friend being their Messiah was snuffed out in a brutal and betraying finish right before their eyes. It's possible now as they sat wondering and questioning what was happening that they were even beginning to feel betrayed as their hopes and expectations were laying in the ground. See, the Easter day didn't start with celebration like it does now. See if my slide went to work here. As they had staked their identity in him, as they began to move forward in following him throughout those three years, they had to persevere through questions that began to undermine and try to plant doubt in their mission. The crowds, the Pharisees, everyone was looking to undermine him. Is this guy who he claims to be? Is giving my life really worth it? Are you sure you want to follow that guy? I mean, after all, he is a bit of troublemaker. What if you're wrong about him? Would you rather live your life in the moment than surrender everything to follow this guy? I mean, you were making an income as a fisherman, and now you're traveling around homeless-like? Do you really believe that you, young, poorly educated outcasts, and a homeless rabbi can change the world together? Maybe these questions echo some that you've had to persevere through in your own life in following Jesus. However, his followers, they had struggled and they persevered through these questions. But I imagine now as Jesus lie in the grave and they entered this dark place, this dark moment of the soul, that they had found themselves now void of hope, void of their expectations, and these questions began to creep back in. Because everything they knew and invested in was seemingly over, finished and meaningless. They had now become the prey of grief, mourning, and doubt. In life, have you ever felt like this? Where you have expectations the way something needs to go, and when it doesn't happen, you just feel that black void. The day, three days following his death must have felt like an eternity of questioning and waiting. The day before and the day after Sabbath, their holy day, would have felt void and deafening with silence. However, the trouble didn't end with just their loss of hope. Everything was stacked against them. Rumors had spread that the Jewish leaders had enlisted zealot SWAT teams to rid of Jesus' influence and track down his followers. That's the reality of life, too. It's never really just one door that closes. It's like ten doors that close at one time. Hey, we lost our friend, our rabbi, our prophet, our Messiah. And by the way, now people are hunting us down to kill us. We know that because in John 20, it says on the evening of that first day of the week, the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Luke records Cleopas, a disciple who says this, we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. They had lost their hope, their expectation, and now they seemingly were losing their safety. For those that have seen the original Star Wars in 1977, you would recognize this classic scene. I think this scene accurately describes what's happening here and also these moments that we feel in our lives. 
You see, Princess Leia has been captured by these oppressive people, the Empire, and Luke and Han, the guys dressed like stormtroopers there, had to rescue her. And so they break into this kind of uh, spaceship that is, is run by the Empire, and they free her. And they're like, woohoo, yeah, we're finally going to break out of here. But what happens in the midst of that is they set off an alarm, and they are quickly pursued by their oppressors. If that's not bad enough, they find themselves in a dead end. And they seemingly can't escape the dead end. Till one of them notices a garbage chute. So if things can't get any worse, now they throw themselves down a garbage chute. Not where most of us would consider a great exit. Yet the bad doesn't stop there. There's now a garbage-eating monster in the trash that is threatening their life. And as they look to escape his threat, they quickly find that the exit door is locked. And in addition to that, the walls are a compactor, and they are beginning to close in on them. That is a very similar reality to what the disciples would have felt like they were facing in their emotions. Everything was closing in on them. We know that feeling. We've had those moments where it feels that everything is closing in on us. With that surrounding context and story, it's where we pick up the Easter story, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. We looked this morning at engaging a story that we are celebrating, only at the start of their day, it didn't feel like celebrating. And the reality is that maybe some of us here this morning are here to celebrate, but inside, man, it feels like a workout to get to that place. It feels like that we can't actually enter a place of celebrating. So this morning, regardless if you feel like celebrating or not, I believe we're going to find in this passage four dynamics and four, question, uh, four invitations in which we can take away from the Easter story in Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Please follow along on your, in your Bible or in the Red Pew Bible in front of you. You can also follow along with me on the screen. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, and now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. And suddenly, in that moment, is where Jesus meets them. And he says, Greetings! And they came to him, and they clasped him, his feet, and they worshipped him. Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go into Galilee. There they will see me. It's a powerful story. It's a powerful story. It has many layers, and it's one that we look at every year, but it's not one that grows weary with meaning. Let's look at four dynamics that we find in this passage. 
Sometimes when God and his kingdom supernaturally break through into our world, it can echo in our natural world. That's one of the first dynamics we see in this passage. In this passage, Matthew is quick to point out there wasn't an earthquake. There was a violent earthquake. Did you pick up on that? What is the importance of that? Well, same thing happened when Jesus was crucified. See, earthquakes, famines, plagues, these were not uncommon things to the people of that era. And so Matthew needs to make sure that we understand that this earthquake wasn't like the one we had last week. This earthquake was a violent earthquake. It was unmeasurably different than anything we would have known. It was powerful. It was obvious that it was a sign and an echo of God's supernatural power in our natural world. Our challenge here is to keep our eyes open to the natural world to look for what God might be doing in the supernatural one. I love that the violent earthquake seemingly isn't what freaks out the soldiers. Did you notice that? If an earthquake hits you and you have me guarding a tomb, I'm not sticking around. Not because the whole smelly body thing falling out, but tombs at this time were, were either in the town wall or on a hill, okay? And they were full of rocks. They were full of big, heavy rocks. Mudslides, rock slides, landslides, these are real things. I'm not sticking around in a violent earthquake. However, these guys stood their ground for the earthquake. Our challenge here is that Jesus can even break the lives of the toughest individuals because they stood the earthquake, but they don't withstand the angels. God sometimes, we see this is the second dynamic, uses angels as message carriers and servants of God's message to the people. Matthew didn't know how to retell the story that he had told to him. He didn't see the angels for himself. So to show us how out of the world this angel was, he compares him to lightning and snow. In other words, it was uncomparable. It was uncomprehendable in power and holiness. Our takeaway from this is that God's holiness is is uncomprehendable. Seemingly, it was the angels that scared the guards. And I say that because Matthew says the guards were so afraid of him, the angel of the Lord, that they were literally scared to death. Violent earthquake doesn't do it. But when an angel shows up and just pushes the rock away with a few fingers, uh, these guys fall over. Angels are powerful, but they are not the point of this story. They are merely an introduction. This angel walks over to the tomb. He rolls back a stone that on average would have weighed 2,000 to 4,000 pounds and then sits on it like it's a stool. However, it's not even the weight that makes that impressive. Not only would this stone have been 2,000 to 4,000 pounds, it was inside a groove that they would have dug out in the ground or like a track, and they would have rolled that up a hill, and they would have had it stopped put the body in, remove the stone, and this thing would have rolled into place. And the reason for doing that was that it really stopped people from being disturbed. If winds came or the rock got moved in an earthquake, which were common in the area, this big stone wouldn't fall over. And so they would dig out this track that went up a hill. So these angels not only push a 4,000-pound stone, but they push it, most likely, up a hill and sit on it. The takeaway is that even though angels are powers and they are powerful and they are message carriers, they are never the center to the story. Third dynamic we see here is Jesus always keeps his promise to us. Jesus told them way in advance that this is the way things were going to go down and 
Regardless, they still wear. They look for him for the for him in the grave. The angel points out to them, "I know you're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified." Now, that's an important clarification, I think, that the angel points out that you're not looking for Jesus, you're looking for Jesus, that, the one who was crucified. And I think that's important for two reasons. Jesus was actually a very common name. Yeshua was a very common name at the time of Jesus and his crucifixion. There would have been other people known by that name. Not only is that a uh, reason to differentiate it, but... He's pointing out, remember, you're looking for the one who was crucified. No one survives crucifixion. The angel of the Lord says, he's not here. He's risen, comma, just as he said. I think angels uh, have a little bit of the challenge in their their attitude that Jesus showed. Uh, I think, in other words, he's saying, didn't you guys get it? Didn't you ever listen to what Jesus was telling you? Our challenge through this dynamic is that we all miss what Jesus is wanting for us at times. It's important to live in surrender and with an open awareness. It is essential we get to know how unique this Jesus who was crucified was. The fourth dynamic we see in this passage is that Jesus is always going on, up ahead, and out and about. This is my favorite aspect of this story. Jesus is never where people expect him to be. When he's a small kid, he goes missing. His parents go all over town looking for him. They're calling up the neighbors. They're, you know, texting the friends from school saying, hey, have you seen Jesus? He's never where people expect him to be. Same thing happened here. Where do they expect him to be? They expect him to be in the grave. They show up. He's not there. We see that Jesus rarely is where we expect him to be. The women who were, at this time, would have been inferior in society's mind, were told to go and tell, tell meaning teach, go and teach the disciples that he, Jesus, is going ahead of you. He's not going to be wherever you found him, and he's not going where you are. He's going to be ahead of you, and it's your job to go and meet him. Our challenge here is that Jesus and the work of the kingdom is always on the move. It's never where we'd expect it to be. And it's hardly ever used as the people we'd expect as the message carriers. Now, I said there's also four invitations. And you'll see a place to fill this out on the back of your bulletin. There's four invitations that I think are present in this passage. I want to highlight these four invitations. Regardless if you feel like you can truly enter the celebration of this season or not, I think these are four important steps or things to hear that will begin to prepare you for that. Because as I said, the Easter story, the one we just read, didn't start out glorious. They went looking for their Messiah in the grave, but it ends after these four invitations we are going to look at with them clasping the actual presence and feet of Jesus. The first thing we see in this passage as an invitation is that we are invited to believe. The angels invite the women to believe that he is alive. That same invitation on the evidence of this passage stands true for us. We are invited to believe he is alive. It's the first step in learning to celebrate. William Barclay says it like this, The thing that was so staggering that it might be true and seem beyond belief, too good to be true, is the fact that there are many who feel the promises of Christ are, uh, let me start over this, 
thing was so staggering that it might seem beyond belief, too good to be true. It is still a fact that there are many who feel that the promises of Christ are still too good to be true. Believe, believe. He goes on, that is a hesitation which can only be dispelled by taking him at his word. He can't prove to you who he is unless you are willing to believe. We are invited to experience. The next invitation we see in this passage is the angels invite the women to come and see for themselves. You are looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. Come and see where he lay. They were invited to come and experience his absence for themselves. The Lord invites us in the same way to come and see that he is alive, that he is powerful, and that he alone is worthy of our trust. The third thing we see in this passage is we are invited to share. When the women realize for themselves that the reality is that Jesus has actually risen from the dead, their first duty was to run and proclaim it to others. Even those who would have been considered uh, better off than them or culturally different, it was their job to carry the message to them. William Barclay goes on to explain this aspect like this. Go tell is the first command which comes to man or woman who has themselves discovered the wonder of Jesus Christ. The fourth invitation that I think we see in this passage is that we are invited to celebrate. And that's what we're doing this morning. In verse 9, we read that Jesus greets the ladies on the way from their tomb, and he says, greetings. Well, our English translation in the NIV doesn't do so well with this word, because greetings sounds like Jesus just pops up out of the darkness and says, hello, which in itself sounds surprising, but that is actually not what Jesus' intent was. The word that Jesus, that uh, Matthew uses here, actually would have been a less likely than used word. It's not one that just says hello or hey. It's more of this formal greeting that was encased with the idea of rejoicing and praising. So some Bible translations will actually have fixed this word, uh, depending on what you're reading this morning. But it actually is like popping up and saying rejoice, like celebrate with me. It's why the first thing we see is that the women fall at his feet. He's not saying greetings and they're falling at his feet. He's showing up from the dead and saying, rejoice with me. Barclay, with our final quote, says, The man who has met the risen Lord, or woman, must live forever in the joy of the presence of him. The Easter story invites us to enjoy the presence of God. And as the worship team comes back forward this morning, I invite you to sit with that. How will you respond to these four invitations? We are invited to believe. We are invited to experience. We are invited to share. And we are invited to celebrate. How will you allow that to bring you into the presence of Jesus so he can say, rejoice, and you can clasp at his presence.